0: episode seven of the Hand to Shoulder podcast. Welcome back. Good afternoon, Cassie. How are we doing today?
1: Great, Steve. How are you?
0: I'm doing well. Busy day. Um, Last night I woke up and my wife goes to bed a lot earlier than I do and I I usually wake up on the couch and then I go into the bedroom and I wake up and I see all this snow. I'm like, am I I seeing stuff? Am I dreaming? Mm -hmm. And then we just had 50, 60 degree weather this weekend, and now it's snowing. And-
1: Huge, beautiful snowflakes, like the heaven doors just opened up set this afternoon.
0: They did, but I'm a little over it. Yeah, I'm ready. I'm ready for it to be done.
1: Ready for spring here in Wisconsin.
0: How's your uh, How's your day been with the patient care?
1: The day has been smooth. Uh, no hiccups. Um, great so far.
0: Just great. No, nothing interesting. That's good. And
1: nothing interesting here Dang. in the home front.
0: Dang, I have something for our listeners out there. I have this weightlifter I was treating today, and he's complaining of ulnar side of wrist pain when he does some barbell curls. And we've been, I've been working on forearm rotation, specifically working at the PRUJ doing a bowler medial glide. But today what we did was I just had him sit against the wall and do shoulder flexion and see if he could get his hands there, see if the lats were. I had him sitting, so I want to see if the lats were contributing to this not letting him use his lumbar spine or his hips to cheat and he couldn't quite get there and then I had him I'm like well, let's go palms up full external rotation of the hands of the, of the forearms and then full shoulder flexion and he was even less closer to touching the wall so what we did was we spent some time we used some pull up our distraction bands we kind of did some modified hanging from our cable column with his forearm in in supination and then his arm and flexion full external rotation and he actually got a little bit better. That's
1: fantastic. Uh, You know, sitting here thinking, I guess I did have, well not really interesting, but I have a gentleman I'm rehabbing after a rotator cuff repair and he has like 100% full motion, 180 degrees of flexion, abduction, but terrible strength, terrible body mechanics, terrible posture. And now he's developing lateral elbow pain because he's using his wrist extensors so I fabricated just out a piece of a scrap piece of material, like a lateral uh, extensor elbow cuff around his. Um, forearm and he just cinches it with like a D-ring and I made a wrist extension block and that's how we do all of our external rotation strengthening and he's slowly starting to engage his periscapular muscles. I saw you
0: with him today. His rota- oh, that's what that was. His okay, rotator cool. cuff right.
1: and he's finally getting over that lateral elbow pain, wrist pain and strengthening the muscles he should be using after all these weeks of rehabbing.
0: There you go a couple clinical pearls from us that maybe you guys can utilize in the clinic. Remember forearm rotation limitations, check that for supination, check that full shoulder flexion with external rotation, palm up all the way. Cassie and I had an awesome conversation this afternoon, earlier today with, who did we talk with Cassie?
1: Uh, She is a iconic CHT, really a true legend of the hand society. Uh, We are talking about Terry Skirvin from Philadelphia. She's really a uh, a true asset to to ASHT, the Philly Hand Conference. Uh, She talks a little bit about um, the virtual conference that they're putting together for the end of March and just really is a wealth of information that we tapped into.
0: Yeah, so you'll get to hear a little bit about her history and the history of the conference, when Cassie's going to be presenting next (laughs) at the conference.
1: Steve's going to be presenting with me.
0: I don't know about that. We might get tomatoes and eggs thrown at us. And <laughs> if you different than that. So anything else you want our listeners to know, Cassie, about Terry at all?
1: Um, well, I guess just really pay attention to all the history that she has really put forth for us and how the Hand Foundation has really evolved uh, since the early 70s. And she's sounds like she's slowly going to be passing her hats off to uh, other colleagues. And uh, she's going to be uh, greatly missed.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So we hope you guys enjoy this episode of the Hand to Shoulder podcast. Please click the link in our bio on our Instagram. If you want to listen to this podcast or on your podcast platform, please subscribe and leave us a five-star rating so we can keep changing the world one hand to shoulder at a time.
1: Good afternoon, Terry. Thank you so much for joining us today. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me. How are things looking today in, in Pennsylvania?
2: Well, uh, a little overcast today, um, and cool. We're waiting for the
1: spring to come. Yes. Us Um, too. Yeah. I saw my first Robin last week. I was so excited. (laughs) (laughs) They're coming back from the South. Well, let's get started with just kind of hearing a little bit about your history and how you got started in hand therapy and kind of your progression of your career.
2: Okay. Sure. Well, I, um, I went to OT school at the School of Allied Medical Professions at the University of Pennsylvania and this was way back in 1971 that I started, graduated in 1975. Um, And the school incidentally is no longer in existence. Uh, It was one of the first schools in the country in occupational therapy. Wow. Um, And so when I graduated from, from Penn, Um, I was inspired by one of my uh, field work instructors who was actually a paraplegic and she uh, was an OT and worked uh, prior to coming to Penn uh, where she was my supervisor, clinical supervisor. Um, She worked at Temple University Hospital and had a wealth of knowledge about mirror rehab and all kinds of things. And so I took a position um, at Temple Hospital and worked there for a year. And I, I rotated among uh, the different specialties uh, rehab, um, the neuro unit, orthopedics, everything but the hand unit. And then after a year, um, the um, Penn had a position available where I had done my field work. It was in the acute care unit. So I went back to Penn um, because I liked the environment so much. And, uh, and again, did more of a general rehab with the acute care patients. At that time, Patients who would have a stroke would be able to stay in the hospital for a few weeks, a couple of weeks, and, uh, and you could get started on the rehabilitation. Nowadays, they're discharged as soon as possible <clears throat> excuse me, to a, uh, a rehab unit or a rehab hospital. And so um, at any rate, that's what I was doing at that time. And at the same time, seeing some hand patients, so this is the unit that I was in. Was both for the acute care patients as well as the orthopedic hand patients. And at the time that I started there, uh, the chief of hand surgery was in the department of orthopedics, and um, the chief of orthopedics was Bill Bora, who was also the editor of the Journal of Hand Surgery. He was pretty well known uh, in his time, and uh, and so we were treating his patients as well as treating the acute care patients. And around this time he took on a partner, and that partner was Lee Osterman, uh, and I was assigned to work with these uh, patients at that time. And was just at that point really inspired by um, working with hand patients. The difference between working with uh, the acute care patients and stroke patients were that you know the, the results of your work with those patients sometimes were a long time in coming. You know, so you might not see. the the effects of what you were doing with a patient for maybe six weeks, whereas with a hand patient, you need to be seeing something happening every time you see the patient. So it was a a really a different kind of approach. Um, And so I I really fell in love with working with those hand patients and with Lee, who was was and is, he's still in practice today, we still work together, a brilliant uh, hand surgeon and just a wonderful all-around person with, with his patients and with his professional colleagues. Um, so that's kind of how it evolved. I just basically began to specialize and just see hand patients. He got busy enough where it was necessary for um, there to be somebody you know dedicated almost full time to seeing those patients. And that's how it evolved. At Penn, we were seeing those patients mixed in with acute care patients. And then, um, as time went on, the space, we outgrew the space and so the department of occupational therapy and department of orthopedics submitted a proposal to Penn to the hospital, of the university of Pennsylvania, to, um, develop a hand center. We were inspired by, uh, across town. We had the hand rehab center, which of course was Evelyn Mackin's uh, center where she with her partners, Lee Oster, or, um, sorry, uh, Jim Hunter and Larry Schneider, uh, started the Hand Rehab Center, um, which is what it was called then. Now it's the Hand to Shoulder Center after so many years. Um, and so we were successful in having our proposal accepted and we had uh, been given half of a floor of the Penn Tower Hotel, which was a hotel that was purchased by the university across the street from the hospital. And it was a very fun experience at the time for me because I got to design the therapy unit um, and then became just solely dedicated to uh, the hand therapy unit there. Um, And that's how things evolved. And working with Dr. Bora, who was a prominent surgeon, as well as Lee Osterman, they were involved in a lot of different projects, which I was able to get involved with. Uh, you know, all kinds of things like testing equipment. The, I don't know if you remember the Greenleaf um, evaluation system. Well, there was a similar system that Cedarron had, the Dexter, and it was an evaluation, a computerized evaluation system and a treatment, um, had treatment capability. And so I was able to, we were a beta site, so I was able to provide some input and try out that machine uh, without actually having to purchase it. So, anyway, it was a very exciting time. And, uh, and then, as time went on, um, Dr. Osterman and one of the other hand surgeons, uh, John um uh, decided that they were going to move on from Penn, and they had an opportunity to join the Hand Rehab Center. Um, and so that happened in 1993. And there was a team of people, and I was included in that, that was able to go with them. And started at the satellite therapies and the satellite offices, and so that's how I I ended up uh, at the hand center. Um, when they joined, they changed the name from the hand rehab center to the Philadelphia Hand uh, to Shoulder Center to kind of mark the um, it was almost like a merger, you know. Uh, and so they they changed to the Philadelphia Hand Center. And now as they as things have evolved, it's now the Philadelphia Hand to Shoulder Center. We have um, surgeons dedicated to treating the shoulder, um, and therapists as well, and, uh, and multiple satellites. We now have, um, 18 or 19 offices and the same number of surgeons and over 30 therapists. So it's, uh, it's grown quite a lot from when I started, but it's been a rewarding experience coming, coming in, um, as Evelyn Mackin was winding her career down was really exciting because I, was able to um, take on some of the things that she had, you know, she had started and actually, you know, really nurtured over many years in her career. So, and that included a number of things um, that I found very rewarding. In addition to developing the satellite therapy and uh, and um, you know treating patients, and then ultimately becoming the director of therapy for all of the units there. So,
1: wow, you have a lot on your
2: plate. Yeah, yeah, it was it was exciting. It just when I look back, I think, wow, there was a lot, but it was everything was so um, interesting and exciting, and needed someone to take it on. Evelyn was seventy when I started at the hand center, and uh, she she worked another ten years. I think she retired when she was eighty. Wow. Um, And so, for those that aren't familiar with Evelyn, she was a very pivotal figure in the development of the hand therapy specialty. Okay. um she and her um, colleagues at the time, there were six therapists that um, found each other at one of the hand surgery meetings. Um, this was before the development of the American Society of Hand Therapists. And so the story goes that they they all met, realized that they had a common interest in, you know, in hand the specialty of hand rehab and so they, Got together and then over time they ended up developing the American Society of hand therapists obtaining the support of the American Society for surgery of the hand um, and all kinds of things there's a lot of, of work that went into that um, so uh, you know it was it, it's something that's that's really important it was very groundbreaking at the time
1: I do want to come back to the ASHT in a bit, but um, first, can you talk about the CHT? When was that a, a an iconic written test? When was that kind of developed during your career? and Were you a part of making and forming that written exam?
2: I was. I was one of the first item writers um, for the first exam. But prior to that, I think it's important for people to understand the role that the American Society of Therapists played in credentialing.
1: Okay, um, I see.
2: Uh, To be a member of the American Society of Hand Therapists, there was a a lengthy application process, and you had to do uh, like three case studies, you had to keep a log, a journal of all of your patients, you had to have letters of recommendation from a hand surgeon, from another member of the American Society of Hand Therapists, and then other support letters. So that served at the time as the credentialing process, and then you would be accepted or not. And it meant something to say that you were a member in the ASC or in the um, American Society of Hand Therapists. And so then the, the 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 um executive board of ASHT felt that there was some vulnerability in that it was somewhat subject subjective. It could be accused of being subjective because there were no you know standardised ways of evaluating the applications, or at least that passed muster in terms of. The whole credentialing process. So it was decided that uh, there needed to be a more objective way of credentialing hand therapists. And so that's how the CHT um, concept was developed. Um, instrumental in that was Mary Dimmick and Mary Cash, who was the first executive director of the hand therapy um, HTCC. Uh, but they gathered us together. Um, there was a series, maybe about 13 or 15. Item writers, and I was um, able to be one of them. And we went to, we gathered together in San Diego, which is I think where Mary Cash was at the time which she practiced. And you know, it's funny because there was no digital media, so everybody brought their textbooks on the planes. <laughs> it was, you know, it was really a chore lugging these big textbooks around. But we were, we were put in a uh, like a one of the small breakout rooms and everybody had their topic. So I was given, I think I was given prosthetics and I forget the other topic. Uh, it's been a while, but everybody had their own little specialty topic and we would develop questions uh, for these particular areas. That was after we had some training in terms of how you actually write questions for that type of thing. Okay. So that, that was done that, and that was in the, you know, we started the process probably in 89, and the first exam was given in 1991. And, um, you know, we thought, uh, you know, maybe some of us thought that maybe we wouldn't have to take the exam because we were item writers, but that wasn't the case. <laughs> so we all had to take the exam just like everybody else. And, uh, and that's how it started in each year since then. So it's been a um, I think a, a very well respected credential um, with insurance companies and surgeons and others um, and uh, really a, a, a wonderful advancement for hand therapy.
1: So that process has really evolved over time with going from an application being accepted and now it's uh, pretty much all computerized. And it's one from five years when I took it down to three years, right? Yeah,
2: yeah. It, yeah, it
1: has. Um,
2: you know, and I, I think it's interesting because you can see some differences, I think. Um, and the exam is not, um, you know, the only thing that needs to be considered in a therapist's ability to care for a particular diagnosis or patient. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, in our center, which sounds similar to your center. Uh, we have patients come who from a distance, and they need to go back to their local area to, um, you know, find someone who can treat them. And so, what we do is we're involved uh, in helping the patient find someone. So we go to the HTCC website, and we look, we, we find someone who's in their local area. Uh, but beyond that, if we're not familiar with that person, then uh, typically we'll call them to communicate, you know, what the case is that's coming their way. And, I always try to send an off note and whatever, and then you know we, we go from there. But uh, it's not it's not enough um, at this point. I think that the C- the CHT alone is not enough without uh, additional you know kind of checking to make sure that they are comfortable with what the the patient's diagnosis is. So.
1: Um, do you, let's go back to the ASHT. So um, that was initially uh, put together as a conference. And uh, when did the uh, annual meetings um, start happening where it became larger?
2: I think it was probably in the late 70s, early 80s. Yeah. Um, and so they they um, gradually expanded their membership. And, and hand therapy as a specialty became more and more popular, I think, over time and expanded their ranks. Um, and it was an opportunity, the ASHT provides a wonderful opportunity for therapists to be involved in um, any number of different activities. They're, the committees that they have for education, research. Um, I, for a few years, was on the awards committee. I mean, it's a great way to, to make contact with other therapists who are hand therapists all over the country and, uh, and then contribute to the society. And I think it's a really important organization for people to be, to belong to, which is support.
1: Yeah. It's a great ne- networking tool.
2: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Does the location change every year?
2: The location does change every year. They plan it, you know, I'm sure years in advance to get contracts for the different hotels. And then every few years they've had, um, in the past, they've had joint meetings with the hand surgery society, the ASSH. Uh, and the ASHT together, will hold their meetings in the same location, and then they'll have a day or two that intersect, uh, so that they they have combined uh, sessions, uh, lectures, as well as the breakout sessions and things, and instructional courses. So, um, and that's really a, a rewarding thing uh, for therapists and and surgeons alike. So,
1: okay, yeah.
0: Terry, when I was starting my my handout. Therapy field work placement. I had this binder that was given to me from my clinical instructor, and it was made by some former students. Um, it was their scholarly project, and it was, you know, 12 weeks in hand therapy, and it had all these assignments. And all I was told was by my clinical instructor, Travis McKenzie, I had to read these two gigantic yellow books, and they were the quote unquote hand Bibles. That's how they were referred to. Um, can you touch on, you know, the rehab of the hand? And I think you were a part of editions five, six, and seven.
2: Yes. Yeah.
0: Could you talk about the first edition and how that's just kind of evolved?
2: Yeah, I, it, it really evolved from the work of Evelyn Macken and, uh, Jim Hunter and Larry Schneider and that first edition, um, I think it was Judy Bell Kratowski who's now passed on, um, and. Basically, it grew out of the symposium. So Evelyn and Jim Hunter and Larry Schneider at the Hand Center in Philadelphia um, really recognized the importance of the team approach to the hand patient. And they started to really pioneer some different treatments, both therapy and surgery approaches. And they felt that uh, after a certain point, Felt that they had a lot to share to the community at large of hand surgeons and hand therapists. And so the first hand meeting, the first hand symposium was in 1974. And then the first edition of the Rehab of the Hand textbook was shortly thereafter, um, I think somewhere uh, in the latter part of the 70s. And uh, Evelyn was the lead, you know, she was the lead uh, editor, uh, and Hunter and Schneider and, and Judy Bell. Um, And they asked the speakers, a lot of the people that were the authors of that first edition, or some of the faculty for that first symposium. And uh, and it was a tremendous accomplishment at the time. And then after that, um, the book was updated with probably every five to seven years, because there was a lot of development in hand therapy at that time, where, um, you know, there was just lots of development both in hand surgery and hand therapy and so there was a lot to to really share um, and so another textbook came out and then it's just evolved that way where the last textbook that just came out last year was the seventh edition um, prior to that I think it was 2011 was the sixth edition and then the fifth edition was prior to that probably seven years prior to that so, um and it just continues to evolve things have evolved for the sixth edition we had a website uh, with all of the the, uh, information on the website as well as additional um, things like uh, pdfs of evaluation forms and exercise sheets we had wonderful videos and it's a wealth of information Um, and with the symposium um, we can talk a little bit about this in more detail but we had at one point, a spin-off surgery symposium. And one of the hallmarks of that, one of the unique features was that we have surgical demos done on cadaver specimens uh, that are video projected into the general session room. And all of these were saved and archived so that um we were able to then uh, have these available on the book website so we paired these up with as many of the faculty members are also authors in the in the textbooks and so we would have those available on the book website so that's been the case for the sixth and seventh edition um, and again there's a, a wide group of authors that uh, have contributed chapters um, for the books
1: yeah, we're lucky enough to have our manager as one of the authors in the first section of the 7th edition with Anne. Yep. Yeah, yeah. She's she's
2: wonderful. She's she has really contributed a lot both to our symposium as well as to the to the book.
1: Is it hard to find updates now as you continue to progress to from edition to edition? Like your anatomy is the same, uh, a lot of right. the authors are going to be the same, so maybe more like your protocols and your treatment techniques are changing?
2: I think that's what it is but also we've tried to incorporate more evidence-based uh information okay and um i think the initial series and the initial textbooks were you know um a lot of them just based on the clinical experience of the authors you know the first edition for sure and second edition so that the the people that were the authors were experts and so they were speaking from their own clinical experience which was certainly very valuable and worthwhile, but as time has gone on, you know, the importance of, you know, clinical research and evidence to support what you're doing, and so that's what we tried to do as time went on with uh, the, the sixth, for sure, and the seventh edition, you know, making sure that we had um, relevant re- references and citations for the information, um, and uh, not just the clinical experience, but but incorporating that as well. So. Um, I think I would say that's one big way that it's evolved. Um, and you're right, you know, things things evolve very, very quickly in the beginning. So there was a need to have um, you know, additional additions come out um, you know, closer together. And then as time has fallen on, it's it's a little, you know, spread out a little bit more. So more like eight years apart versus five or six. So sure,
1: that makes sense.
0: Speaking to those additions, and you said know how it's evolved with the evidence-based i'm just curious from my perspective i would say in my career i've noticed that when i first started as a student and in my first job i was thinking i have to just get down this elbow down to the fingertip Mm -hmm. and then i started to realize i have to go more proximal and now i really believe wow i'm so glad i've spent all this time developing my studies on the shoulder but now as i've continue to evolve and grow over my career, I'm thinking, holy cow, I need to look more at the neck, the trunk, sometimes the pelvis, right. are, you, are you guys putting in more kinetic chain or addressing some of that stuff in the newest edition?
2: Yeah, we are. We are. I think each year or each edition, um, we've incorporated more and more on the shoulder and cervical spine and, uh, and have some of our experts contributing chapters um, on those topics
0: yeah i definitely need to pick up a new copy i have edition six but i think that's just something i've you know gotten from just different mentors i've had in my life and you know and being here one of them but sometimes i think as hand therapists we identify as that so we kind of box ourselves in and i just believe for the for the listeners out there if you really think something's coming from the trunk or the spine or the neck whatever it may be that's contributing distally if you can document it functionally That is leading to that impairment. Don't feel that you have to be boxed into, I can only do, you know, distal down. I don't know Mm -hmm. if you would agree with that or not.
2: Yeah, no, I I definitely agree. I think that people need to be um, always looking at the entire upper extremity. One of the things that, you know, our chief surgeon Lee Osterman does is he has an extensive upper extremity, uh, initial evaluation that he does. And so, if somebody comes in for, say, a finger injury. They end up getting from from the neck all the way down to the fingertips. He has the fellow or the physician extender go in and do that, and then they pick up a lot of, you know, additional problems that the patient might have. But therapists need to be able to do that as well. Now, whether the therapist feels comfortable or is trained sure. to treat the cervical spine or the shoulder, um, you know, that there's a lot of variation in that, and I think. In our setting, we have some therapists who are um, specifically trained with shoulder and cervical spine, and others that are not. Um, and it, it sort of breaks out the same way with our surgeons. We have a couple of surgeons that are designated as the shoulder, you know, people, and they do shoulder and maybe elbow. Um, and then the other surgeons will do elbow and down to fingertips. So it sort of breaks out a little bit like um, it does with the surgeons, with therapists. But nevertheless, I think your point is, is correct, that the therapists need to be aware of, you know, how things present that are maybe originating in the spine or the shoulder, but they're seeing some, some uh, symptoms for the distilling. And so it's real important, I think, um, you know, for all therapists to have that, that awareness.
1: So Terry, when I hear your name, like when, when someone hears Terry Skirbin, they think Philadelphia. Philly Hand Center, Philadelphia Conf- Hand Conference. Can you speak a little bit about when the Philadelphia Hand Conference started and your role sure. with the conference?
2: Yeah, the, the conference started, the first one was 1974. And um, it, it grew out of the work of the principals, Dr. Hunter Schneider and Ellen Mackin, And they they all had their, their contacts and uh, colleagues across the country. Knowing about these folks from attending the American Society for Surgery of the Hand meetings, um, and then ultimately the ASHT, but it was a—I I think I even attended the first one, or maybe one or maybe one or two after that. But it was—it uh, was well attended right from the beginning, with about four hundred therapists and surgeons. In the beginning, I think there were there was a surgery attendance as well, um, and. Uh, The format probably has stayed the same largely over the years with a general session with 20 minute presentations and then breakout sessions in the afternoon. And I think that that has been the hallmark of the meeting. What I think is, is just, it's like the signature of the meeting, a huge faculty. Um, and we will have maybe 40 surgeons and you know, that many or more therapists. And we, we have people come from all over and, uh, like Anne um and credit and uh you know basically the experts in these in their different areas and we had them come and present their talks and then the the neat thing about the meeting is that there's a lot of networking that's the thing we miss we're in the throats right now as we speak putting together our virtual symposia for 20 for this year um, it's based on what we had planned to do for 2020. I'll tell you more about that in, in a couple minutes, but what's happened over the years is that the meeting was a success. And so um, the the principals decided that they would do it every year as a continuing education meeting. And so it was basically for a long time, surgery and rehab at hand. Um, and it, it had a reputation for being sort of an entry level to maybe intermediate level in terms of its, um, uh, you know, educational level and, uh, and so for a long time that's what it was and it was um, attended by beginners and students and then and you know therapists with just maybe five to ten years of experience. And so when Dr. Osterman and Bennor and the penn team and myself joined in 1993, Dr. Osterman decided that he wanted to do a spin-off meeting of a symposium focused on surgical technique because the surgery and rehab in the hand, uh, was really primarily uh, uh, directed to therapists. it was It was more um, you know kind of to today the, the needs of the therapist, even though there were talks uh, regarding surgical technique and other kinds of things like that. Um, and so he started, and the group started the surgery symposia. and that um, it was very much surgical technique, very specific techniques. And the second, probably the second or third year, Dr. Ostrom decided to, that he wanted to do these surgical demonstrations real time. So we had to figure out how we were going to do that in terms of having specimens, having them available for these surgeons, faculty to come and do a surgical procedure and project it into the general session room. And then, so it was quite a feat of organization to do that. We also initially tried to do the two meetings together, but it, there was just so many people. Uh, and there wasn't a hotel or a setting that we could use for both. So it, it ended up being two, two separate sites, To and they were hotels that we would have meetings in. Um, and they ran concurrently, and we would share faculty. And mostly, it was the surgeon faculty coming over to the therapy meeting. Uh, with one or two therapists giving lectures over at the surgery meeting, um, but it, but it was a way to really provide more detailed information for the surgeons, um, and then the therapists and the surgeons could mix and match, so you could go to either one of the meetings. So we, so that's been running um, all along for about fifteen years now, or over fifteen years, and that's been a gratifying kind of evolution. The other thing that we did. Was around that same time was decided that we would have themes. So rather than surgery and rehab the hand as a general um, thing, we decided to have a theme. So for example, the wrist, or the elbow, or tendon and nerve. And Evelyn and uh, Jim Hunter and Larry Schneider had started this the tendon symposium back in um, you know back in the beginning, probably uh, maybe. In the in the 80s, somewhere, I think it, uh, 1984 probably. But anyway, every 10 years they would repeat this uh, tendon and nerve surgery and rehabilitation meeting. Um, so, but I think it 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 it's evolved to a higher level meeting with more specific information uh, because of these themes. And so we've done things like the uh, the weekend warrior um, with you know uh, sports and um, you know, musician's injuries and and things like that and athletic injuries and, um, you know, and uh, other kinds of things like technology and innovation, which was our theme for 2020, which we're carrying over to a certain extent through this current meeting that we're planning now. Um, But it's been a, it's been a wonderful, you know, kind of experience to be in and kind of a way for therapists to get their feet wet. You know, We pick people that we know that are known authorities in certain areas and invite them to come. And then we utilize, we have our staff help out with the breakout sessions and to whatever extent that they're interested in presenting, you know, more like a podium presentation or a panel, um, we encourage our staff to be involved with in that. So it's, so it's a great uh, way to learn and a great way to um, you know, spread our knowledge and the, their clinical experience to uh, the attendees that come in.
1: That was um, one of my questions for you, Terry, is how you become a speaker. Now, I know you mentioned that you kind of handpick them. Is that the case for every year?
2: It's the case, pretty much for the case for every year that the the, um, the faculty, and we do have a core faculty, of people that come year after year, Ross Evans, Nancy Cannon. Um, you know, we're... we're that these are my contemporaries. We're all kind of aging out a little bit, you But um, um, but we, we bring in new people, and I rely on uh, the co-chairs who are scoping out other meetings and have connections to know, you know, who's out there doing what. You know, we look at the literature, we we look at ASHT to see who's speaking there, and then try to incorporate as many new speakers on topics as we can, so that it becomes a, a real Kind of living and breathing, meeting and not, you know, not get uh, tired and repetitive. Um, and so it's, you know, we're in for a change now. I think this this year with the virtual format, you know, has required us to have a major change. We're doing the, you know, basically the program, but the the breakout sessions we can't obviously do. It's not hands on, so we're doing lectures and demonstrations. So everybody's got their iPhones out taking videos of, you know, orthotic fabrication or Clinical exam procedures, things like that. So it's it's been a real challenge, know, all the way around. So. Yeah, yeah. that, that was... it's exciting because we have um, a tremendous number of presentations uh, that are in store, and we're and we also have incorporated the surgical demonstrations on cadaver specimens that uh, are in our archives from our prior surgery symposia. So I think that'll be exciting. There's a lot of a lot of the uh, therapists may not have the opportunity to to actually observe surgery. so this gives them the ability to observe. And we have a number of um, procedures from our various cast meetings that are available to view. And then the the, the meeting itself, we have a live portion um, on the uh, not this weekend, but next weekend on Sunday, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday. And then that's going to be uh, recorded. and that'll be added to an extensive on-demand program. So um, I think you know if we can get through all the technology um, pitfalls, then it will be in good shape.
0: So. Yeah, Cassie was just asking you that because she's putting herself out there to be a presenter. Yeah. She's ready. She's ready for it. Yeah.
1: <laughs> that might be a big task for me. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, um, you never know. I mean, I've had people send
2: me, you know, emails and. Notes and examples of things they've done, and we have had people who, you know, are just starting out and want that experience. And I think, I mean, you know, that's great. And I think what you guys are doing here with your podcast is a, a great way to, you know, hone your presentation skills. Um, you know, it's funny. I think of myself when I first started, and I, I was working at Penn at the time, and I was asked to do a presentation. This is this. You asked me about an embarrassing. Experience, well, this was sort of embarrassing or frightening or whatever you want to call it, but I, I was asked to talk to a group of nurses in a classroom, and we were at Penn's Hospital. The, the hospital is right on the campus of the University of Pennsylvania, so it was a nursing class. And I think I was talking to them about arthritis and hand, hand therapy and occupational therapy for patients with arthritis. And I had it all prepared, but I had never done any presentations before. And I went to the class, and I, I was not prepared for how nervous I was. And I think I hyperventilated through a little thing. <laughs> it was really painful for, for me and for them, I'm sure, too. <clears throat> so after that, I thought, well, I can either just never do it again or figure out how I'm going to be able to develop this skill because working with the people that I work with who are high profile at the top of the field, um, I need to, break, to, you know, rise to the occasion and, and develop some skills. And so, so the next time an opportunity came along, it was to speak in New York at a VA hospital, you know, which was a big deal for me. <laughs> now, I couldn't even speak off campus. And um, <clears throat> so I would just think about it and what I had to present. And I would hyperventilate just even thinking about and you know and I was asked because I was doing the rehabilitation for procedures that these surgeons were doing that not everybody else was doing. So there was a reason that I was asked because I had the experience. I just didn't have the presentation skills. So um, I laugh about it now, but I ended up going to a hypnotist <laughs> and learn and and kind of doing visualizations and relaxation. And the other thing that I learned from this is what's really important. Is to um, you know be prepared and know your topic and really know it well. But the other thing that you need to do is also to be able to share your experience with patients in an engaging way because that's what it, what brings it you know alive for your audience and for therapists. So um, so I worked very very hard and then got through that experience and and did fine. It was okay. Um, but the, the lesson I learned, and that I think people need to learn, is if they get their feet wet and uh, feel nervous and don't do as well as they think they they uh, should have, uh, not to give up and just to keep keep working at it because uh, it's a, it's a skill. It's really just a skill that you can learn. And if you're speaking from your experience and your knowledge, then that's going to come through. And and you'll feel you'll feel good about it because you're sharing information that people want to hear that need they need to hear. So, and, you know. so
1: that's the trick, the hypnotist, huh? The hypnotist. <laughs> well, you know,
2: I think <laughs>
1: yeah, that's probably I mean, what I, I need. It just, me.
2: it just helped me feel okay about it, but it was uh, it was really just a lot of hard work and preparation. And then the other thing is just practice, you know, and just taking opportunities. I was involved in. Um, a continuing education company that uh, did a hand therapy, kind of a basic course, and there were four of us, and we each had three topics, and it was a day-long thing, and we went from one city to the next, like, over the period of the year, and the great thing about that was that um, immediately, these were smaller groups, like 100 people or 150 people, something like that, and when the the day was done, they would turn in their course evaluation. It was only a one-day thing. So we would all gather around the faculty and look at our our course evaluations, and mine were terrible <laughs> in the beginning, and I think it was because I was still kind of nervous and I wasn't speaking just from my experience, and I was t- looking at my notes too much and you know kind of reading some of the information, and it, it's not fun to listen to somebody when that's how they're presenting it unless they you know unless it's pretty unique but. At any rate, I started to watch some of the other speakers that I was with on this panel, and one in particular, actually it was Susan Strolkin, very, very engaging with her, her audience. And she talked to the audience rather than kind of hiding behind her notes and um, and then asking for input from the people in the audience. And so then it became a kind of a, a give and take, and and then you know, it just became easier to speak. I think most of the time people have their the experience, they have the knowledge but it's just the comfort level in being again presenter. So um, I think that that was, that was a good lesson for me as well, just to really kind of, you know, just talk to the audience and share your knowledge and, and engage them and bring in uh, their experience as well. So um, but I've done things in my career that I never expected I would, you know, having been in the right place at the right time as Evelyn was uh, retiring and and you know kind of winding things down, someone needed to take things on, and I was the one at the time. And now I'm in the process of transitioning other people to take some of these activities on as well. So well,
1: that's great. Been, you've you've it's done it's been been a lot fun. for the Hand Therapy Society, that's for sure. Yeah, I'm just gonna circle back to the Philly Hand Conference and just give a little <sighs> co- just give a little kudos out. So I just got to share my first and only experience with the the hand conference. So in February of 2017, my coworker, Nicole and I went to our first conference together and we flew out of Detroit and the travel experience was an absolute disaster. By the time we got to Philadelphia, so we left at seven in the morning on a Friday and we got to Philly at ten thirty uh, your time that oh, that man. night. So we enjoyed the conference. It was a well-oiled machine. We learned a lot. Um, it was, Fantastic experience, met a lot of great people, learned a lot. And then um, I started to feel a little ill while I was out there. And I thought, mm. hmm, well, this is not going well. <laughs> and I started to have a little bit of morning sickness and then oh. some other things going on. And I thought, well, okay, this is not a, the experience I was expecting. Mm-hmm. So uh, Sunday night came around. I was up most of the night with uh, a very horrible stomach ache. Monday, just kind of dreaded through the day, continuing to learn, and a snowstorm was coming in Monday night.
2: <laughs> I think I remember that. <laughs> yeah,
1: so we decided that we were going to leave early, not stay till Tuesday morning. Meanwhile, I'm still feeling horribly ill, and my co-worker is carrying my luggage for me. I'm like doubled over at my knees, and wow. we get to the the airport Monday night, and our flight going out at 5.30 was pushed to 9.30, 30. Oh no. So we left and we got to Detroit. Well, our Detroit to Appleton flight we missed. So we ended up staying the night on the concrete floor in Detroit. This is our mm. first experience of the hand conference. Oh, that's awful. And then we both had to work Tuesday morning.
2: <laughs>
1: Long story short, the following week I found out I was expecting my first child. So I will always remember the Philadelphia hand conference. <laughs> I'm sure. And that's something. Okay. So let's move on to, um, are you involved in any research right now or uh, any previous research that you want to share with us?
2: Sure. Um, that was one of the, the real benefits of working with the group that I work with uh, because of the opportunities that are available to therapists that, that work there. And it really, it's just a matter of, you know, kind of seizing the opportunity and, and making the most of it. We, uh, when, when collagenase injection was introduced for Dupuytren's contractures, um, before the FDA approved the collagenase, uh, our center was asked to be a, a center of excellence. Dr. Osterman in particular was approached by the company that manufactured the Xyplex auxilium pharmaceuticals. And so that meant that, um, our center would be involved in the teaching of their, uh, sales professionals, their medical directors, people like that, so that they understood, um, Dupatrin's disease in general and some of the, the standard ways that patients are treated and then, um, and then be able to represent what the collagenase was supposed to do. So I was involved in developing the program for these folks that were there part of this company and, uh, and so I was treating, I was teaching um, the therapy approach to patients following Dupuytren's um, surgery. And so uh, as I began to learn more about the collagenase and, and how the multicenter study that was done prior to the FDA approval, um, I realized that they had uh, eliminated severe PIP contractures as an indication for. Um, the use of the collagenase. And they said that they, the, the reduction of the, of the uh, contracture was not nearly as, as what it could be with lesser contractures. Um, and what I noticed was that in their research, they had not done anything specific in terms of addressing some of the issues that you see with a severe contracture. Um, the splinting was just non-specific. They said you apply splint, wear it at night, and do some exercise. But it seemed to me that they didn't have uh, on their team their research team therapists who could really look at the details of how these patients could be treated to maximize the results. So um, I did some thinking and discussing with my surgery colleagues and and uh, developed what I thought would be a good protocol and was encouraged by. By the surgeons that I was working with on, on this to submit for a grant from the company and so I proposed a study looking at the use of a specific orthotic regimen as well as specific exercises for severe PIP contractures following um, collagenase injection and was awarded a, a $70,000 Grant, which was really kind of fun to do. I mean, it it didn't require a lot of effort on my part other than just putting together the proposal and the idea, you know. And um, and so we conducted the study. And the basically the gist of it was when you have a severe contracture owing to uh, Dupuytren's disease. after you uh, address the Dupuytren's the tissue, either by a fasciectomy or in this case with a collagenase injection and later manipulation, um, you still have the issues of a stretched out um, central slit and you have the issue of a volar plate that may be contracted, and collateral ligaments that are contracted. Uh, so that the Xyaflex injection alone can't be expected to Um, you know, just sort of uh, correct the contracture if you don't address these other elements. And so that's what the protocol basically involved. And we had 30 subjects and found tremendous improvement uh, compared to the study, the subjects that were part of the original multi-center study that was done prior to the FDA approving it. Um, And that was really a very enjoyable, um, you know, process to go through because I had you know we had the finances and we had the support of the surgeons and uh i was able to follow it through from start to end but research is, is just you know it's just difficult though in a busy clinic it's not always easy but i think it's possible to do it it just requires you know really coming up with the idea and going through the steps of developing a protocol and, and getting your irb approval and then being able to follow it through Um, but that was, that was very
0: gratifying for me. Terry, you've definitely done it all in your career. The reason why Cassie and I started this podcast is, you know, we want to give back to our profession and hopefully continue to push the envelope of our profession in hand therapy. And based on your experience and years and wealth of knowledge, can you give any clinical pearls that you've learned to share with our listeners? some thoughts on developing relationships with surgeons as well.
2: Um, there's, there's so many things. Um, I think, I think there's a few things, uh, as far as clinical pearls, one of the things I think that, um, I see people doing, uh, novice therapists is when they're teaching patients exercise, they, they sometimes might tend to, um, load the patient up with many, many variations of exercises and overwhelm patients. And so I've learned that less is more, <laughs> you know, that, that, that if you pick out a few really key exercises, targeted exercises and, and have the patient buy into that and then follow them up and, and then add things in and take things away to be realistic about how they, um, you know, how, the, how they are able to follow through on their own at home, um, I think that's important. You know, patients just left to their own devices, they'll pick the easiest exercise, and you know, so it really requires, I think, uh, you know, thinking about what's the most important thing that they need to do at that point, especially early on post-op. I had a, a patient, an NPR orthotist patient the other day, and I, you know, there's lots of things you can have those patients do, but faced with a, a the dynamic extension of cyst orthosis and a static splint and all of that, I think you want to just really try to make it as simple for them as, as you can. Um, and then the other thing is just, you know, some of the corporal instability patients I've seen, you know, understanding that a lot of these patients, what's more important is what they don't do versus what they do and what you have them do. You know, sometimes they're doing things that just exacerbate the the pathomechanics and the instability and the and the pain that they have. And So you know, really looking at uh, you know what are they doing in their daily life and trying to eliminate things that may be provocative, and just helping them understand that you know squeezing a putty or doing a lot of resistive wrist curls and things is not going to help their um, instability problem. Um, and then I think the the other thing in terms of the relationship with surgeons is to understand. Uh, what your role can and should be, instead of looking to the surgeon, asking them for what their uh, what their protocol is for a certain condition, but to have an understanding and be able to discuss, you know, with equal confidence and backup, you know, what would be the appropriate approach to treating a patient with a flexor tendon knowing the details of that patient's case and understanding the various different protocols that, um, you know, that that would be appropriate for that patient. Um, understanding, you know, the hand therapist understanding that their role is not as a technician, but as a clinician who has the knowledge base um, and understanding and clinical experience to be able to recommend um, appropriate approaches to treatment and not just to be limited to, if the doc writes something on the referral. I mean, I was honored to receive the Natalie Barr Lectureship Award a couple of years ago. And, and this, this professional ide- identity um, concept is sort of a, an issue for me as I've worked over the years. And I've seen that there are some, there's there's a maybe a bit of an evolution of how therapists are um, you know, relying on the surgeon to say, you know, what protocol do you want? rather than trying to understand, well, what, what do you think would be appropriate? So I think, you know, just the, the, in the early days with Evelyn Macca and Judy Bell and uh, all of the therapists, Nancy Cannon and people, Ross Evans, these are the people that have developed the protocols for trigger finger and flexor tendon repairs and sensor repairs and all of that. And so I think that, that that's the mindset of therapists that are coming into the profession need to have that they are the rehabilitation professionals. The surgeon isn't. And if you ask a surgeon how much uh, training they've had in hand therapy and orthotic fabrication, probably not much at all, or, you know, maybe a little bit on their fellowship. And so I think um, therapists need to think of themselves as equal partners in the care of the hand patient, just like Evelyn Mackin and Jim Hunter and Ira Schneider, um, you know, to take that you know, role and really uh, embrace it. And, but in order to do that, you need to have preparation. You need to have the knowledge base, understand the science, understand the protocols and why why and when they're indicated. And just by, you know, having that mindset and, and interacting with the surgeon at that level, I think will then influence the surgeon to um, have more respect and more, uh, you know kind of acknowledgement of the therapist's knowledge base and what they have to offer you know if the therapist goes to the surgeon and says well what do you want me to do you know what kind of splint do i make um the surgeon's not going to have a lot of confidence that that therapist knows what they're doing and that can influence how they end up interacting um you know so it's it's sort of a it's a it's kind of a fine line but it, it really involves working together and also just having your own um sort of self uh concept self-awareness that you know you're the rehabilitation professional it's your job to understand those protocols so that you can make appropriate recommendations and work with the surgeon not not just um you know whatever they they tell you to do kind of thing so that would be probably my most important the most important thing i think that therapists need to learn for a rewarding career but also one that you know will benefit the patient and and
0: the institution yeah that's great i think everything you said i agree with and i experienced that throughout my own career i don't know about you cassie but early on it was what's the protocol say what do i do what do i do and then as you alluded to you have to really stay in the literature you have to stay current because you right. may, you may get a physician who refers to your rehab facility and you are able to talk to their PA, their nurse, maybe the physician himself. Maybe you get some time in front of that physician at a follow-up appointment, but it might be as simple as saying, Hey doc, there's some evidence, some literature, I read this article on this type of repair, presenting them with a new idea, something they might be willing to, to try and how empowering is that for the therapist and just a different language as opposed to what you said, what do you want me to do? What should I put them in? Right.
2: Right. 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 And it's, it's so important. It really is important and, and really just having a dialogue with the surgeon. And if you don't understand something, you know, I can remember years ago saying to a surgeon that I worked with who asked for early motion for something that, you know, the, the appropriate or the standard approach was immobilization for a few weeks. and you know and, and he just simply described the type of surgical week that he had done and you know and then we were able to proceed and it was i think it's just sort of that dialogue and that interaction that's important and it's done in a respectful way um and, and a way of you know demonstrating the interest that you have and your care that you're providing the best that you can for the patient um so
1: yeah i agree it's all about the approach and how you handle the situation and and how you show that confidence, which really kind of evolved over your career. Yeah, it really does. And it, and it does come back
2: to, to what you said, the, the preparation that you have reading journals, you know, understanding the science behind, uh, the protocols and understanding when it's appropriate to apply them. And, um, and really just taking that responsibility, seeing, and your self image, your awareness of yourself as a professional. Um, we have an interesting. Uh, program for we have a fellowship the MLAC hand therapy fellowship which is a six month fellowship but out of that has grown um, a fellowship that we have created for uh, military enlisted therapists for the Air Force and the Navy where they come and they stay for a year and they do the six month hand therapy fellowship and then following that they do six months to a year with the surgeon and we have them train with our existing. Uh, people that are physician extenders. So that would be for a nurse practitioner we have, or a physician assistant, um, and we have therapists. Some of the therapists that we at the Hand to Shoulder Center have served that role as a physician extender. And that simply means that they go into the office with the doc, they see the patient first, they do the initial amount, they may do some follow-up evals. When they're with the doc in the office, they may say, uh, this patient needs an X-ray, and so they're able to order the X-ray, um uh, and things like that and then the surgeon will go in and actually do the, the you know zero in on the problem and and uh and take it from there but the therapists that are that are coming to us from navy and the air force sometimes are in when they're deployed they're in a situation where there aren't an abundance of hand specialists so they end up being the first line of uh you know evaluation that that patient may see and they're in a position where they may need to be ordering EMGs, ordering x-rays, or deciding this patient could, you know, just see um, a therapist at this point to see if it's something that they feel could benefit just from therapy. So it's it's an exciting program, but it does, I think, speak to the worth of a hand therapist and the roles that they could play um, in some of the, the different situations. Like that.
1: I love that. That's a great way to utilize your staff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah.
0: And we have to remember too, the physicians are the ones that are in seeing the quality of the bone, the tissues, right? I've,
2: exactly throughout
0: my career, different physicians I've, I've worked with, um, both here in Wisconsin and Arizona, if I had a good relationship with them, you know, you see Dr. Joe Schmo, it's a zone two flexor tendon repair. That doctor might reach out to you and say, Hey, I feel really good about this repair. You can push them a little bit, you know, you can progress them. Hey, I want you to hold off. We got to really Remember the surgeon's the one seeing it, so I'd encourage everybody out there to really try to develop a relationship with a, a surgeon who's referring to your facility as often as right, possible. It'd be great right. to develop that.
2: Yeah, it really is a it, it really is a joint effort between the surgeon and therapist, and the therapist can't know what the surgeon saw, you know, at surgery, um, and the surgeon, you know, can't write every little detail, you know, uh, on the referral, and so. Getting, getting as much information as you can, get over these more complicated cases, getting the op note, um, you know, and, and finding out as much as you can will help to guide your treatment and, and respecting the fact that the surgeon is the one that, you know, is gonna know best in terms of the healing capabilities of the, the different structures that were injured and repaired um, and that the therapist really can't know that. So it, it really is a blend of, you know, of the expertise of both. Um, and need, and there needs to be that collaboration.
1: Yeah. Um, okay. Well, Terry, I think we're going to start wrapping it up, um, to all of our listeners, uh, Terry is a very busy lady and we thank her so much for her time today. She has to do, uh, go to another zoom call, but we're just going to end with three rapid questions. You actually answered the first one already with an embarrassing moment. Um, so we'll jump to number two. Uh, what is something you like to do for fun uh, when you actually have spare time?
2: Well, you know, I guess mostly spending time with my friends. You know, over this past year um, with quarantine and and being isolated and things like that, that what's really meaningful is being able to spend time with family and friends. And and usually it's outside walking or, you know, having a, you know, I have had garage parties in my garage, you know, with with outdoor heaters, which don't really do too much when you're outside. 30-degree weather, but I think mainly spending time with family and friends um, has been has been really important for me over this, over this past year, for sure.
1: Okay, and then if you didn't become a hand therapist, what would you have chosen instead?
2: You know, I'll tell you, I um, really love being in, in rehabilitation and occupational therapy. I think the thing that's so um, great about it is it, it's an optimistic profession because you're coming to a patient with a problem and looking at how you can help them make their life better and getting back to what they want to do to the best that they can. And so it's, it's a great optimistic you know, kind of approach to start with, but also what I like, what I really like is problem solving and coming up with unique solutions to, to things. And so I, I would be an occupational therapist and I could, I could certainly work in rehabilitation or even in geriatrics in a nursing home and and home care you know i just love the interaction with patients and being able to just sort of see what are their issues what are their problems and then uh helping them you know find a way above that and, and at the same time having really rewarding uh, relationships with patients as well myself so I, I think rehabilitation as a profession whether it's i mean i'm partial to ot but i think Tt is the same thing, having that ability to get to know people and work with them and see them improve and gradually see them get back to their, to the lives that they want to live.
1: Well, great, Terry. Thank you so much. I look forward to meeting you in person sometime and coming back out to Philly. Uh, I'm done with babies, though, this time, so I can enjoy this, the second attendance.
2: (laughs) Well, hopefully it'll be a better experience for you.
1: Yes, hopefully.
0: Yeah, well, thank you so much again for your time and. Uh, We appreciate everything you've done for the profession, and we hope that there'll be some other people you'll be passing the torch to soon.
2: Yeah, I I sure will. We're in the process now, so, and thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure
1: talking with you. Great. Thank you, Terry. Thanks, Terry. Enjoy the rest of your day. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. to that podcast with terry skirbin uh steve what's coming up next
0: on the next episode we're talking about extensor tendons with josh and miranda from hand therapy partners in arizona they co-own that clinic miranda works on the east side of the phoenix valley and josh works on the west side and for our listeners i'd highly recommend checking out their instagram account hand therapy academy there they have They have over 20,000 followers on their Instagram account. They put up great educational content. They have CEUs, a lot of CHT prep. We can't wait to dive in about Hand Therapy Academy with them and have them educate us on extensor tendon rehab. It's going to be a great episode.
1: Great. Looking forward to it, Steve.
0: We'll catch you guys next time.